Thanks, Mark. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Auckland EV. My name is Rowan. It's great to see you here. I hope if you're new, you, you find this a helpful week to consider who God is and who we are. I hope that if you're not new, you, you find it the same thing. And that as we gather together to open God's word and hear God speak, uh, we would see its incredible significance for us. If you want to leave your outlines open, uh, that'd be helpful. And I'll pray as we now um, ask God to help us hear what he said to us through this part of history and this part of his word. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you, to your voice heard through your word written in the scriptures by the work of your spirit. And we are very aware, Lord, that your word is living and active. And that as you speak to us, you shape us and you mold us and you challenge us and you change us. So we pray this morning that you would search our hearts. You would help us to see the great hope we have in your son and the depth of our rejection of you, and you would cause us, Lord, to well up with joy. We pray this day, by your Spirit and through your Word, you'd speak to us. Amen. Have you ever noticed that some of the biggest mistakes in life don't come during times of struggle or hardship, but during times of triumph? Ever noticed that? When your eye's not on the ball, when things seem to be going well, is the moment that you trip and, and things happen. We're caught off guard. Our defenses are down. It's as if at times in life we're riding on all sorts of false senses of security or an optimistic view of life or work or relationships, and then something happens and we're not aware, we're not alert, and we fall. We miss something big. As we open up God's Word this morning, it asks us this question. Have you missed something big? Have you let the circumstances of life, our comfort, our security, cloud reality? Over the past few weeks, we've been following the real history of a man named Abraham and his family. Abraham heard the promises of God that God gave him because of nothing he had done. God gave him promises that he would have many descendants, even though he was an old man that God would turn him into a great nation, that they would possess a, a land and they would have rest from their enemies, that God would be their God and that all nations through a descendant of Abraham would be blessed. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a descendant of Abraham, David, made king. He was the, the, the one God chose, the king God selected. He was living in the land promised to Abraham. It was a great nation. It was large. There was blessing in every way. And we saw in 2 Samuel 7, a key passage in the Bible that God upped that promise. He clarified it. He expanded saying, not only will um, you rule, but one of David's sons would rule God's purposes forever. He would be on a throne and would not die. That he would live as God's promised king. And then last week, if you came along to Uni Church, you would have heard the kindness of David with Mephibosheth. I said it. Uh, who was Saul's grandson, uh, this, this child that, that David cared for just because he wanted to keep his word. We saw what David was like as this king, a good king, a king after God's heart, a king that God had chosen. And it looked like all the promises of Abraham are almost complete, all delivered. If it wasn't through David, then it would definitely be through his son. It's a high point in the whole time of biblical history where after the fall of Adam and Eve now, it's come to this point. And you're like, this is exciting. David's at the top of his game. He's walking on sunshine. Oh. 
And it makes you feel good, doesn't it? Then we read this. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, when kings marched out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, at first reading, you read that, and it doesn't seem much odd about that. At spring, when kings go to war, but when you look closely, you see that the king David was not where he was supposed to be. He was somewhere he shouldn't be. See, kings led their people. That's what David had done up until now. He had gone out into battle, leading their armies. At the height of his game, as things look oh so good, David found himself somewhere he should not have been, at home. Verse 2 of 2 Samuel 11. One evening, David got up from his bed, strolled around on the rooftop of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. You get the picture, right? He's home. He's not at war. He's not with his men. He's resting on his laurels. He's gotten up, probably rested that whole day. In the afternoon, he gets up, walks out onto the roof of his palace, which overlooked kind of all of Jerusalem. As he looks down, he would have seen all these different places. And he's looking around just to, you know, see what people are doing while all the soldiers are off at war. At war. And then into his line of sight comes Bathsheba, although he doesn't know that that's her name yet, bathing on the roof in one of the nearby houses. And again, he finds himself somewhere he shouldn't be, thinking something he shouldn't think. You can almost see how his mind's working right now, right? He doesn't jump straight in. He's just kind of cautious. Like all of us, when we reject God, we walk into sin one cautious step at a time, pretending that we're innocent. There's nothing going on here. We're just having a look Nothing bad. I wouldn't actually do anything. I know that she's not my wife. David just takes one small step. I wonder what her name is. I wonder who she is. It's as if he's trawling the pages of Facebook, just looking for someone, an old fire, a flame. And while there's no button to click, there is a messenger to send. And so he sends his messenger to hear who she is. And this is the report we hear back in verse 3. His messenger reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Iliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. I love this. You see, the messenger doesn't come back to David and tell her her hair color and report on her beauty and what she's like and all the things about her that David would love. He describes her relationally. This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. Something very important here for us to understand about our identities. It's a side note, but it's helpful for us to focus on. So many of us define who we are by who we are as individuals. What we contribute to life, what I've done, my my gender preferences. We think that we're totally free agents, individuals unaffected by anyone else on the planet. But God has a far richer way of defining us as humans, relationally. We are who we are because of who we are in relationship to. We are in relationship to God in that we are made in his image. Unlike every other creature on the face of the planet, humans are made in the image of God. We are defined by our relationship to him in his likeness he made us. We are defined by our family, our parents. 
We come from a family line. Our surnames are carrying those who've gone before us. Our genetic looks and makeup come from our family. We didn't kind of sit there in the womb and go, yes, I want to have a big nose. We grew a big nose or whatever it is. We're defined by the new family unit, a spouse, a husband, a wife. We're defined by our relationship to our children. I'm a father. You might be a mother. Uh, You might be a daughter, a sister, a sibling. We are defined by our relationships. It's interesting that God himself is defined by his relationships. Have you ever noticed that? He is God the Father, who sent God the Son, and who both sent out God the Spirit. They are defined by their relationships within the Godhead. The problem with our world is that we're too individualistic. We think it's all about me. And that can cause a huge ripple effect when things come apart. See, marriage, it's kind of not a matter of personal preference. We kind of think that. You know, who are we to stop someone from getting married if they've got love between them and someone else? Who are we to be involved in that? But marriage, it's the backbone of society. It defines limits around family units, doesn't it? It is the glue that holds families together. Relationships never just affect us. All of us are someone's dad or daughter, sister or spouse. So we need to not be naive and think that life is just about me and you. It's about relationships. This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now at that moment, it's almost as if God is saying to David, stop. I've been very clear, David. She belongs to someone else. And the one that she belonged to was not just anyone, it was Uriah the Hittite. Now, a Hittite is not a Jew, it's someone who's become a Jew. He's kind of become part of the Jewish nation and served David and God and become part of that. And not only is he just a Jew that's kind of a non Jew that's come in, but he's one who's a soldier, a servant. In fact, he belonged to this kind of elite group of around 30 men who were personally given the charge of protecting the king. He's the king's personal bodyguard. That's who Uriah is. And at that very moment, when kings go out to war, that's where Uriah was. Well, David was somewhere he shouldn't have been. And at this moment, like Adam and Eve in the garden, David found himself somewhere he shouldn't have been, doing something he shouldn't have done with someone he shouldn't have been near. Verse 4. David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. Words that should have brought great joy bring incredible guilt and judgment. I am pregnant. Or what he has done. At the top of his game, when things look brilliant, David makes one choice, one mistake, one error of judgment that brings in death, division and defeat We'll see that the, down, the downward kind of fall of the rest of the book of the Bible really goes from almost this moment on. Like Eve in the garden, all over again. Eve saw and she took and she ate. David saw, David took and he slept with her. Some of the biggest mistakes in life come during moments of great triumph. We must be very careful. Where are you at in life now? What's going on in your head now? Are you at the top of your game, feeling untouchable, feeling like everything is sailing along well? 
Or are you somewhere you shouldn't be? Looking up that old friend on Facebook, rekindling a flame we know we probably shouldn't, just to see what they're doing. Everyone else in the house is in bed, but we're still up by the glow of a computer monitor, looking at things we shouldn't look at. Everyone else maybe has left for work and there's just one or two employees left and you just go for a quick drink. It's just relational time, really. Uh, There's nothing going on between me and her or her and him. You keep yourself away from God's people at church or away from a connect group rather than being where you should be, where where you can serve. You say, oh, look, maybe another day. Just not today. I'm not up for it today because you don't want to hear God's word that day. You don't want God to mold and shape you and you don't want others to ask questions and to to care for you in that way because, well, you're on top of your game. Everything's just right. I don't want God to upset the balance of my life. A temptation to bring comfort and pleasure to ourselves in ways God has not provided is huge. Our world screams it everywhere. Come and indulge in money, invest in this area, drink lots of wine, indulge in women. Have, have men at your beck and call. Find your, your security and your pleasure in your career. At this moment, the king God chose, the one who would rule Israel, the one after God's own heart, the one through whom the king who will reign forever would come, the one God had given every good pleasure, thinks he can achieve something greater than trusting in the will of God. And trusting in the plans and purposes of God. God is saying to us this morning, is this you? Is that you? Do you honestly think that your plans for your life are better than God's? I don't know where you come from this morning. I don't know what's been going on in, in your world, but I find myself there often. Yes, if I just did this or if I just did that or perhaps this would be good. Or Are you somewhere you shouldn't be? What is it that's got your attention? What is it that you lie awake thinking about at night? As I've been reading over the passage this week and thinking through uh, what God is saying to us and what he's saying to David, you know, I read this and honestly thought I would never do this. I would never go to the extreme lengths that David does. I just, I just wouldn't do it. And you kind of find yourself in a little self-righteous moment thinking, yeah, I'm doing all right. It's been, it's been good. But then it struck me. This is David. This is the man who would not even touch more than the corner of Saul's robe, even though God had said David would be king and Saul wouldn't. He would not bring in his plans or purposes outside of God's timing. He wouldn't even dare to do that. If someone took out Saul, which they did, David killed them. This is a man who is so right and so kind and so good and so generous. (laughs) He's a giant of faithfulness and righteousness. Here's why it's so important for us to hear this warning today. Because greater men and women than us have fallen. Greater men and women than us have fallen. David, David. The moment we say it will never happen to me is the moment Satan has got you exactly where he wants you. Complacent. Well, just like Adam and Eve, at this very moment, David has two options. He's found out the news And his options are to confess or cover up. I mean, these stakes are high. If he confesses, he could lose his job as king. 
He could lose his reputation. He could lose the favor of God. He could possibly even lose his life. So he goes with plan B. So many of us do so often. Cover up. He's like, I know what I'll do. Before this gets out, I'll bring Uriah back from battle. So he pretends to care for Uriah. He brings him back from the front and and gives him this little care package and kind of sends him home with his wife for the night to say, you have a great night. You know, you come here, what's been going on? And kind of sends him home and thinking Uriah will sleep with Bathsheba and it'll all be good. He won't know. But he doesn't. Not while his men are in battle, he sleeps at the palace door. You're like, man, what a man is Uriah. You can kind of see what's going on for David. He's getting kind of a bit a bit kind of nervous, kind of a bit edgy. He's walking around. What am I going to do? So he's like, I know what I'll do, alcohol. I'll get someone drunk, right? And like, what drunk man can resist his wife? And so he gets Uriah drunk, sends him home and says, go, have a great night. But even a drunk Uriah is better than a sober, sober David at this point. He doesn't sleep with her. He won't. So plan B, plan C. <laughs> David writes a note with instructions on it. And he gives that note to Uriah, his servant, to faithfully carry back to the front lines of the battle and give it to his commander with the instructions that are there for what is to happen next. And unbeknownst to Uriah, that note says this, put Uriah on the front lines and then when they come in, pull back and have him killed. David makes Uriah carry his own death warrant. And give it to his commander. That's how low his cover-up is going. He's like, let's get rid of this man and there is no problem. Just listen to what happens in verse 16. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab. And some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Not only does Uriah die, but some of the soldiers of David who were there with him die because of David's whole plan. Collateral damage, it doesn't matter. David just wants to be squeaky clean in front of everyone else. And we've got to see what happens here. The more you cover things up, the more sin grows. Please hear that. The more you cover things up, the more sin grows. Nothing fertilizes our sinfulness more than covering it up and letting it fester. It sits under the surface and lie after lie after lie, continue, continue. And we just perpetuate lies and hurt people. It's what we are like. Sin is like a box of mushrooms in the dark. You know what happens if you leave a box of mushrooms with that composty stuff? In the dark, it grows and fungus comes up everywhere. That is what sin is like. If we leave it covered up, tucked away in the darkness of our heart, it will fester and grow Sexual sin is particularly abhorrent. It's particularly festy. <laughs> See, affairs take with them not only the person, the couple, but families and children and churches. A good friend of mine has walked away from Jesus because the church that he went to, uh, the pastor of that church, who'd been encouraging people to keep holding out the truth of the gospel, encouraging people to, to live faithful lives before God, it came to light that that pastor had been sleeping around. Or over 10 years, he'd repeatedly counseled couples who were going through marriage difficulty, and then he'd kind of counseled them to separate, and he'd counseled the wife then on her own, and eventually had an affair with the wife. But he did this over 10 years with at least four couples. And my friend stood back and went, if this is what Christianity is about, then I want a part of it. 
because of the unfaithfulness and rampant cover-up of someone who should have been able to trust, so many from that church walked away, not just from the church, but from Jesus and potentially eternity. Friends, eternity is at stake. Eternity for your families, for your spouse, for your children, for your friends, for your church. This matters. I'm going to generalize a little bit here. And so if the roles are different in marriages in our church, then you can do the conversion yourself. But husbands, sex is important. Yes, it's important to be having sex with your wife. But if you're not having enough sex, then you might want to ask if you're loving your wife. It's our role to lay down our lives for our wife and to love and care for them. Maybe go home and and ask your wife, look, do you feel loved by me? How could I love you more? Not just in order to get sex, but in order to love her. And wives, just as it's the husband's role to lay down his life for you, uh, so it is your role to love and respect your husband. And part of what respect looks like is to say, well, I actually want to regularly come together as the two becoming one, regularly having sex. It's important. It's partly what marriage is about. Sex in the service of God is how Christopher Ashe describes it. Marriage is this great gift symbolizing Christ's union with the church. It's important that we work hard as as Christians to point to what Jesus has done, that he is not unfaithful, that he does fulfill his obligations, that he does love and care for us. As a church, we want to make sure that we invest into the marriages of our church. And so we're going to put on a marriage seminar on the 26th of August. You'll see a, a slide up there for that. Great date to put down in your diary. You'll see on the next page in your outline, there's a little thing there as well. Uh, so it'll be a whole day seminar. It'll either be from 9 to 5 or from 12 to 8. Um, but if you'd like to come along, if you're married um, or you're engaged, uh, it'd be a great thing to come and invest in your marriage uh, for the sake of our church. If, if you're single, maybe uh, volunteer to babysit people's kids. And say, look, I'd love to babysit your kids so that you can go and, and think through how you can um, grow in your marriage. It'll be a great day where we can do that. So put it down in your diary as something to come along to. And for those of you who are single or, for, or are dating, and you find yourselves creeping further and further towards lines that you know you shouldn't, places that you should not be, and I don't just mean sex, it's like creeping closer and closer to a sleeping tiger. When you walk up to a sleeping tiger and make one slip, one crack, and its eyes open and it will devour you. It doesn't take much. Sex is built to glue two people together. And it works like superglue. It's good. It's why God has given us this great gift of service of one another. But if you rip it apart, if you introduce a third party, it rips you to pieces. But the greatest offense of all this isn't just sexual sin. The greatest offense isn't what it causes to the church to your friends, to your spouse, to your family. The greatest offense is what happens to God when we remove him from his throne. We say, I think I know what's better. We reject the God who made us and sustains us and say, I don't care. I think I can get my own good. I can get something better than what you are offering me. And we all do that. My hunch is that there's not one person in the room today who was at some point, sorry, there's not one person in the room who was not at some point sexually sinned. If it hasn't been in person, it will have been someone on a screen or on the pages of a book or a scene in your mind. It's all of us. We're all broken. We're not perfect. Here's a lesson from David. Cover-ups, 
cause catastrophe. Cover-ups cause catastrophe. They cause guilt to overwhelm us and overburden us. They cause us to lie and to hurt other people and to perpetuate untruth. Uriah is dead. His father has been lied to. The lives of other innocent soldiers have been taken. Families are distraught. If only David had confessed what he'd done. If only he'd come to his senses. The kind and just king allowed passion and pride to perverse his character and reject God. If only he'd stopped. If only he'd confessed there and then. The problem was that David wanted the ark of the Lord in the city of David. He wanted God's blessing in the city, but he didn't want the ark of the Lord in his heart. He didn't want to obey what God had said, those Ten Commandments that were inside. Do you know what that ark said? That he spent so much effort getting there, moving back into the city. You shall have no other gods but me. Put me first. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not give false testimony about your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. (laughs) He wanted the ark, but not the law in his heart. He wanted God's blessing, but he didn't trust God that his way of living was right and good. How often I do exactly the same. We want God's blessing, but not his word, not his input on our life. We want his presence, but we think we know a better way to live. But it's at this point that we get to see the joy of Jesus and the privilege of confession. So as you stand back and you look at what David was like, and you recognize that he is not the king who will rule forever, and we long for a king who is perfect and right and kind and just, and you see what David did, oh, it makes me go, I am so glad that Jesus was not like David. Imagine if Jesus had slipped just once. Imagine if he'd given in. If just one time he had rejected his father. Every single person on the face of the planet would be in hell forever. There will, be, there will be no sacrifice for our sin. There will be no one to stand in our place. There will be no one righteous. Not even Jesus. How amazing Jesus is. The one who is fully God and fully man, who experienced all the temptations that we experience and more. He knows what it's like because he didn't give in to them. They grew and grew and grew and the temptation got bigger and bigger and bigger. We don't experience that because we don't hold on long enough. We so often give in. Yet he always trusted his father. The reason Jesus showed mercy to prostitutes and porn addicts wasn't because he was one of them, but because he wasn't. As he died on that cross, he offered the perfect, clean and pure life of his for our own life. He did a swap. Jesus died not covering up his own sin, but covering up our sin through his precious blood. As we look to Jesus, David's great-great-great-great-grandson, we see with joy what he has done. He has offered us sinners forgiveness, a clean slate, wiped clean, and given us the option. Will we confess and have our sins wiped away, or will we cover up? Now, naturally, we hate to confess things. If you're like me, I hate it. I don't want to come before someone or someone else and say, look, I'm sorry for what I've done. We hate to talk about what we have done wrong because it paints us in a bad light and we don't want to be painted that way. 
It's like there's this inner voice inside of us that says, you, you, you just can't say that. It, it's too much, Rowan. If you tell someone, if, if you confess it, then it will bring shame on Jesus. You can't. It will hurt the people that you love, and that wouldn't be loving. And so just hold on to it and make a lie and, and, and don't, don't say anything. It, it will damage your reputation, and that's not helpful. How is that helpful? Do you have that voice? That voice that whispers, don't say it, don't do it, hold on, keep it quiet. Have you heard that voice? Let me tell you, it's demonic. It's Satan saying, you can't trust Jesus to forgive you. The lying is just as bad as the sin itself. There might be consequences, but we have a savior who took the ultimate consequences for us all at the cross. Jesus said three words, it is finished. My sin is paid for if you trust in him. He has died in my place and yours and is offering you a clean slate before God. (laughs) How thankful I am for Jesus. How much I need to hear that truth rather than the voice of Satan saying you can't. We'll see next week some of the consequences of what sin means for David. And we'll look at that a little bit more. But I want to come to the inner world of David and show what happens to him as he finally realizes what he's done. I want you to flip in your Bibles to Psalm 51. I'm not going to put it on the screen because I'd love for you to pull this out in your Bible and mark it and have this as a place that you go to often. At the start of each Psalm, sometimes there's a little heading. You know, in the Bible, there's, there's headings up the top that say certain things, you know, like David does this. And then there's a little, in the Psalms, a little description underneath it. That's actually in the Bible. That's in the Hebrew. So this isn't just what some author has written to add in. So Psalm 51, it says at verse 0, <laughs> For the choir director, a Davidic psalm, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. What is going on for David at that moment when he's realized his sin? Have a listen to these words as you read it. Use a pen, highlight it, come back to this. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create in me a clean heart. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. They're amazing words, aren't they? They're words that David didn't quite know were pointing forward to what God would do in his son, Jesus. When Jesus would wash us with hyssop, whiter than the snow at that cross. That he would turn his face away from us and our sins and turn it towards the son who willingly took the penalty for us. Do you see the joy that Jesus brings? Do you see the privilege 
of confessing our sin to God. Today, God offers us the ultimate balm to our guilt. He offers us the ultimate solution to our sin and the ultimate salvation for all of our souls. You might have walked into church today, maybe oblivious toward God. Just kind of like, yep, I'll come along and see what these people do. You might have walked in today at war with him, angry at the way he's acted in the past or acted in the present. You might have walked in carrying all sorts of guilt for things that you've done and said or things that you, you haven't said or that you hadn't done that you should have. Actions you've committed. Actions you might be in the middle of committing. Today you can walk out of this very room with every single one of those things wiped clean because of the blood of Jesus. Forgiven. Perfect relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. Every single one of your accounts before God stamped with the words paid in full. You might have come to church today confessing Christ, saying, Yeah, I am a Christian, living with every external sign and symbol that you are someone who's sold out for Jesus. But underneath, you bear a massive weight of guilt. You know where you are going with your thoughts, with your actions, you know where your heart lies. Today, hear from David's life the call to stop covering up, stop pretending, and come to God and confess it. Confess that you don't deserve what he's offered us in Jesus. Ask him to wipe away our sin in his son. You can walk away today honestly and authentically, a child of God, an heir of his promises, living forever because of what Jesus has done Stop pretending. Stop covering up and confess our sin to God. Well, today you might have come to church, come to God tired, a bit ambivalent. Sin lurking at the door in all sorts of areas. Well, I hope that today you hear the warning. The kingdom of David went downhill from this moment on. When everything seemed so good, it just took one trip. I hope today you can see the depth of our rebellion, of your rebellion, and the incredible mercy of God. Here is a warning. It's a, it's a warning shot in the sky. Stop it. Stop looking. Stop pursuing. Stop chasing pleasures, security, things that God has not provided for you outside of him. The way to experience forgiveness and rest is for all of us to come to God. Stop pretending. Stop covering up our sin. And thankfully confessing our sin to him because Jesus has covered it all. Confession is hard. Culturally, we don't kind of do that sort of thing. We don't like going to someone else and going, hey, look, I just need to tell you what awful things I've done. It's not a pleasurable experience for the most of us. We don't kind of go, yes, yes, that's what I'll do. That'll be great. But confession is so good because it lets us be real. It lets us come before God and come before others and let them see what we are like. Today, God always brings up stuff for us. His spirit prompts us in little areas in your life. I don't know what they are. He does and you do. Whatever areas are coming up for you today as God's spirit works through his word, I plead with you, confess them. 
Confess them to God. Say sorry for the way that you have acted and for removing him from his position on the throne and ask him to be the king of your life, to rule. Let him drive your life. But confess it to someone else as well. We're called to be brothers and sisters to support one another, yet we think we have to pretend to be perfect. One of the things that we need to do as a church is to stop this cultural aversion to being real. We need to go along to our small groups or to a group of friends that we catch up with. We actually need to tell them where we're at, what we're struggling with. There'll be no surprise to them. It might be surprises to what area, but no surprise that you're a sinner, just like me. We need to stop it. Stop pretending to be perfect. Stop covering up our sin and confess it to God and share it with others that we might walk alongside one another, praying for one another. That's why we have connect groups. That's why we, we come to churches. why we need to keep coming together to be real, to be honest. Let me plead with you today. Don't cover up your sin. Don't pretend that we're okay before God. Don't think it'll be all right. Everything's going well. Confess your sin to God and confess it to one another. And at the same time, experience the wonderful joy, incredible joy that comes like David experienced that day, knowing his sins had been wiped clear. That before God, he was forgiven because of Jesus at that cross. What a joy Jesus is. I'm going to give us a moment just to spend some time privately in confession to God. We must make sure we do not walk away from this word today and forget it. There might be areas in your life that you need to repent of. There might be things that you've done or said that you've never actually told someone, whether it be 40 years ago or four years ago or four minutes ago. Why don't we spend the next minute maybe reflecting over Psalm 51 and confessing privately to God your sin. And if today you've come along and it's the first time that you're here or you've actually gone, wow, I, need, I want this forgiveness, then why don't you use this moment to come to God and say sorry and ask him to be your king, to forgive you and to live for Jesus. Let me give you a minute. Let's pray. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. 
for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You were right when you passed sentence. You were blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I'll be whiter than, I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Turn your face from my sin and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Father, we are so thankful that we can say these words with absolute certainty because we have seen the death of your son on the cross. We've seen that Jesus faced the penalty that we deserve, that your anger was poured out on him rather than us. We ask, Father, that you would give us boldness today to confess who we really are, to recognize we need to do business with you, but you are the God who is open for business, who longs for us to come running back, to confess what we have done and to trust in your son. We pray, Father, for the marriages within our church, for the relationships that are here, that you would see our marriages continue to be strong and focused on your son. We pray for our purity, that you would allow us as a church to love one another as brother and sister, not inappropriately, but purely and rightly. And we pray, Father, that you would lead us not into temptation, but you would deliver us from evil. You would give us the strength to speak to someone else that we might share how we're going and say no to sin. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.